Blog Talk Radio. This Week in Health Innovation on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, your producer and moderator of the show. And my guest today on this rather impromptu Health Policy Roundtable features two colleagues, Dan Monroe and Fred Goldstein. Good morning or good afternoon, as the case may be, gents. Good morning. Hey, Greg and Dan, great to be here on the show today. Glad you could join us. Dan Monroe is a writer and speaker on topics of innovation, cybersecurity, and policy as they intersect with one of America's largest industries, healthcare. Starting as a Forbes contributor in 2011, Dan has since appeared in a wide range of globally recognized publications, including Newsweek, The Huffington Post, Recode, and many healthcare-specific publications, both online and print. His first book, Casino Healthcare, was published in 2016, and he is also a top writer on Quora for five consecutive years. Follow Dan on Twitter via at Dan Monroe, that's D-A-N-M-U-N-R-O. Fred Goldstein is a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. And my colleague at Pop Health on this and affiliate networks, Pop Health Week on this and affiliate networks. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the Best Practices Review Panel for the Institute for Medicaid Innovations. He is a past chair and former board member of the Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter as at FS Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and Physician-led ventures I publish and principally author, acowatch.com, healthinnovationmedia.com, and precisionmedicine.center. And now let's get started. The impetus for this uh, rather impromptu session was uh, generated by a number of separate but related events. Uh, First up, the rumored blockbuster acquisition of Aetna by CVS Health. The recent rather quiet non-announcement by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid and Administration for the performance year results for accountable care organizations participating in the Medicare Shared Savings Program to the Next Generation Cohort. The abrupt resignation of Secretary of Health and Human Services Tom Price. SEMA Verner's reinvention initiative for the Innovation Center at CMS and Who can ignore the massive cuts by the Trump administration to both market and facilitate enrollment in exchange-listed qualified health plans? And this is all against the relentless, though mostly failed, efforts by Republicans to eviscerate the Affordable Care Act while pitching an Obamacare is a disaster narrative. So with this busy background, 
and a wide swath, gentlemen. Let's let's dive under the uh, the hood here. So since the CVS Aetna blockbuster thing caught a lot of people by surprise, uh, Fred, let's start with you. Uh, tell us what you know and what you make of it. Yeah, thanks, Greg, and, and, and clearly a, a broad number of areas to cover. Um, if you think about the Aetna uh, CVS potential deal that's been rumored out there, um, you know, a lot of it, people were thinking this is driven by Amazon, and certainly that plays a role in it as you consider the fact that potentially Amazon gets into and, and completely disrupts the uh, pharmacy delivery and uh, distribution system, as they've done in other areas. But as I touched upon the healthcare blog with a, a post that, that was recently put up there, There's another potential reason to do this, and that has to do with the medical loss ratio rule in the Affordable Care Act, which I and a number of other people around the country have have, um, discussed um, over the years as being one of the fundamental possible errors within the bill because the medical loss ratio really, the way it's set up, causes health plans to look forward to seeing costs increase versus coming down because as they go up, they can make more money uh, based on that rule that 80 to 85% of it must be spent on medical care. But but as I looked at that, I realized that if they were acquired by uh, CVS Health, um, in essence, they could go out and target some of those areas and save money there. At the same time, increase the revenue paid to CVS through, for the pharmacy services and hold their medical loss ratio within the requirements and actually CVS as the owner could pull additional funds out through that mechanism. So it's interesting to see um, how this goes and if uh, there actually is an, uh, an effort to purchase Aetna, obviously it would give CVS tremendous control of a plan, but also allow it in some ways to uh, increase the growth within that plan of its pharmacy revenue. So let me ask you this, is this a case of the tail and in this case, CVS Health presumably is the tail wagging the dog, the mother house of Aetna. Yeah, I guess it could be. It could. Be, it could certainly be be conceived that way. You know, you always think of the health plan being the big player, sort of controlling their suppliers and distributors within the constraints they have. Um, but it, it really is the way for a uh, a distributor or provider, in essence, to uh, perhaps uh, get inside that and and change the operations bit more favorably towards its position. Dan, what do you, uh, what, what, what's your take here? So, yeah, I'm, I agree with, with, uh, you know, that kind of assessment. I'm a little suspect of the idea that, uh, there's an influence against the medical loss ratio only because insurance and health insurance in particular is so heavily regulated by the individual states with state insurance commissioners that pretty much everything has to be, uh, you know, sort of blessed and reviewed annually for approval uh, as a health insurance product. So there may be uh, opportunities there to save uh, monies, but I think the real interest is broader in the sense of trying to capture uh, more consumer interest and activity uh, around their own health care. And so the synergies there, are, I think, are pretty compelling and not surprising. Uh, uh, but it is a big blockbuster in the sense of it would be the largest M&A deal, I think, of the year. And so it's it will absolutely go under as much scrutiny as the other Aetna deal uh, earlier this year that sort of cratered. 
So we know in this country there's been enormous payer consolidation. You have a handful of mega players, Optum, United, Aetna, uh, the Blues, uh, Cigna, and um, and others who escape me at the moment. But uh, certainly between Aetna, who reported somewhat soft results recently, perhaps due in part to the failed merger between uh, Bertolini-initiated acquisition of Humana, uh, uh, when you stack up Aetna against United, the difference there is uh, United has a wholly owned PBM, Optum RX. So w- wouldn't it be more logical for Aetna to acquire CVS Health? That is a, essentially a distributor, a retail-based distributor that has a PBM, which perhaps might be the lion's share of the revenue. Uh, how, how does it happen what might seem contrary with the logical way an acquisition like this might play out. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, the details, the mechanics of it relative to perception has a lot more to do with how Wall Street perceives it and sort of the accounting, the accounting mechanisms that are necessary to make that happen. And it may be that the politics are easier for everybody if CVS is the acquirer as opposed to an alternative perception, especially in light of what happened with Aetna and Humana and the failure there. So this may be a way to navigate uh, the due diligence and the scrutiny that the size of this deal is is absolutely going to entail. Fred? So Dan, I was going to ask you this, Dan. You talk, talked earlier and mentioned that you know you thought it would go under some pretty pretty substantial scrutiny by the feds. But given that they're really two separate business entities, and and CBS is competing with Walgreens and OptumRx and, and Express Scripts and the rest of them, that it's it it doesn't really face similar scrutiny because it's not really um, contracting a specific industry through the acquisition. Well, I mean, yeah, it's not as direct. Um, it's not a direct consolidation. They're separate business, you know. They're separate business entities and separate business focus. But the size and scope of the deal is such that this will absolutely trigger a significant review, and the optics of that are important for sort of both sides to get right the first time. These deals are expensive, and I know that um, typically when they're announced, they also include uh, clauses that are expensive in the event that they don't pass muster. So there's a lot of legal uh, there's a lot of legal behind the scenes that we don't see. Right. So, Fred, let me dial back a little bit here on um, on the the synergies here. Uh, would be, I guess, to put uh, CBS uh, um, apparently um, um, uh, the cost of the, if you break down premium, there's a pretty substantial allocation that goes to the pharmacy benefit. And is this a way to, for CVS to protect their pricing or how do you see it? I mean, and how does this benefit the patient in an environment where 
premiums just continue to skyrocket and more and more costs are pushed to the member through copayments, deductibles, and coinsurance. What's the benefit here for the patient? Or is this, just, is this a Wall Street roll-up synergy play? Well, it really depends on the, on the backside once something like this is done, how you could potentially benefit the patient. So there are some ways that this could happen. For example, let's say they did go in and, 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 and cut hospitalization utilization, and then PBS, uh, the, the, um, CBS excuse me, went ahead and began to put in programs that, that did a much better job at improving adherence, which we know is a major problem in, in medical care. That improvement in adherence should result in improved outcomes, et cetera. And obviously, CBS would see more revenue as people were filling prescriptions more frequently and, and getting appropriate meds, et cetera. On the other hand, the, another way they could potentially benefit the individuals is to, is to leverage all of those sites that they have and the services they have and create a really easy, consumer-friendly way to access your health care. You know, if you link those, those uh, CVS uh, clinics into a broader network and perhaps they function like a mini prime or something like that. So there are ways to do that that I think would be a benefit. Now, whether you see this actually drive down costs in the long term, I don't know that, that that's potentially what's going to happen here. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me, so looking at CVS as a delivery system. And then you have, obviously, all the payer infrastructure that would come from that, and not to mention the reach into the employer marketplace. So one last question on this. I don't know if, Dan, you want to weigh for, in further, but I was wondering, to the extent that this Amazon card is played here, and, and that's almost like um, – it's hard to wrap your brain around what the potential is for Amazon in terms of their infrastructure capabilities, their business model, and the tentacles that they have in e-commerce. Could that hand be overplayed? Is it, is it kind of like Google's going to take over the world with uh, Google Glass, and then two years later it's removed from the marketplace? Is this uh, trumped-up expectations about what the, the threat is from Amazon and what their capabilities are? I don't think so at all. I think, in fact, this is a direct response, not so much to the healthcare industry as much as to Walmart. Keep in mind that, that Amazon is a direct competitor and probably biggest competitor to Walmart, and Walmart already has, uh, you know, prescription pricing for generics. That's like they have a huge list that's five dollars, and so that's that is a very significant opportunity that that plays very directly into Amazon's hands. The idea that they're going to disrupt the PBM market or that they're going to somehow disrupt healthcare more broadly, I think is a bit of a stretch. I think they're simply responding to Walmart's success with their $5 prescription program and there's a way to move that online in a way that maps very directly to prime membership and uh, adding in drugs as a part of uh, as a part of their um, natural extension yeah and I would just add I agree with you completely on that Dan and, and the whole concept of Amazon is really about you know ease and and if you don't need to go to a pharmacy to go pick your stuff up you've automatically improved adherence and so I think that that kind of a distribution system, you know, is, even in talking with some of the senior execs at large companies around the country who have said, literally, we just want a drone to drop the stuff off at somebody's house. Don't make them go right. to the pharmacy to get it. So I think that's going to be some real potential given their distribution system. 
Absolutely, but it, it maps very directly to what Walmart, you know, Walmart has done this at the retail level with $5 prescriptions, so it's basically an extension of that, allowing for home delivery and yeah. uh, with under the prime banner where it's free, and boy, if you can facilitate and make that easy, let's do that. And getting into the PBM business is, you know, not impossible, but uh, there are some regulations there that Amazon can certainly navigate, but it's not trivial. True. Okay, gents, let's uh, let's pivot to the next subject, and uh, it might make sense to just sort of roll this up uh, in in a health policy uh, context. Uh, you know, uh, prices abrupt resignation as um, as HHS Secretary Seema Verna brought in uh, because of her block grant expertise uh, and consulting in the state of Indiana, and the uh, turmoil you might say, uh, subsequent turmoil in the agencies, both HHS and CMS, conflicting turmoil in terms of goals and expectations of these agencies relative to the ACA. And all the efforts that have gone in around uh, the um, legislative efforts to, to uh, repeal and pla- replace ACA, and since none of them succeeded, it's all about administrative tweaks to things like defunding marketing budgets or not funding navigators, um, uh, holding back uh, cost-sharing reductions. I mean, what does this all mean to <laughs> us as as patients uh, or providers trying to figure, read the tea leaves and position our institutions or enterprises um, for what seems like very conflicting incentives. Dan, you want to start? Sure. The, um, I mean, there's no question that the turmoil has really been unprecedented. And I've gotten to the point where it's almost like that line out of, the movie, The Princess Bride, right? Unprecedented is a word that I, I don't think we know what it means. <laughs> and in part, because we keep using it for, for this administration in every category, including healthcare and specifically healthcare. So the turmoil that's been created has caused, in effect, the, the payers to react as we should expect them to react, in some cases withdrawing completely, and in other cases increasing rates that that will adjust to reflect the loss of uh, the, the CSR payments. And that kind of turmoil, uh, in some ways, was forecasted by Trump and the administration early on, and I think we're just in for more turmoil for the balance of this year and certainly next. And, Fred, do you see this as a matter of uh, articulating a self-fulfilling prophecy-type agenda, or might there be a, some other way to look at this? Well, yeah, I think um, it's pretty clear that, you know, it's it's all up, you know, it's going crazy. And but within that craziness there, you know, as you said, defunding certain areas, not doing others. So they will I think you will see, you know, further problems with with the exchanges and whether there are providers or, or payers who are willing to get involved in the exchanges. The prices are going to go crazy. At the same time, I think you're seeing some of the shift in where CMS is focusing through some of these uh, requests for, for uh, you know, information around some innovative things. And actually, I've had a couple of conversations with people recently who have said in their discussions with CMS, they've been pretty surprised. They're much more open to broader uh, 
and more innovative concepts than people have been in the past. Now, whether that actually comes to fruition, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. But clearly this whole effort to, to somehow, if you can't get it legislatively, derail the, uh, the Obamacare initiatives is pretty clear. So let me put both of you on the spot here. So uh, HHS resignation by price, good thing, bad thing? Uh, to be expected with this administration. And this administration has a history of sort of throwing grenades. And one of the grenades that they threw early on was the nomination of Tom Price to begin with. He was, he was controversial. And uh, the fact that he's gone is reflective of the caliber of people that this administration is attracting. And that's, that's going to put everybody, um, you know, that's going to put everybody on edge. And it has, and it will continue to as long as those are the kinds of candidates that get put into those kinds of positions. I think it also raises another interesting sort of operational issue that you say you want to get all this stuff done in whatever area. You put somebody in place, it doesn't get done, so you then remove the person, which causes it further not to be able to get done. So you kind of get behind the eight ball, and at what point do you actually move some things forward in any direction? Yeah, and it's yeah, interesting, too, that one of the um, interviews that I read with great interest was the Politico interview with former Speaker of the House Boehner, and uh, some of his comments on the sidelines now are are pretty provocative in the sense of calling the GOP out uh, very specifically on lacking the uh, the sort of credibility and lacking the the cojones outright is the way he phrased it for repeal and replace. This was the real vote, and they weren't able to get to it, and so. The, the the last seven years are, are are sort of coming back to haunt them in the sense of all the talk and all of the the 50 or 60 different votes that they had in the House, which all failed and were expected to fail to repeal Obamacare, and they came to the real vote and they didn't get it. Right. So what 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 what, what can we say then about Seema Verma as the uh, CMS administrator, is this uh, basically uh, the female version of Tom Price, or, or, or who is she, what's her agenda, and what might we expect from her, particularly repositioning CMS and the Innovation Center? Any thoughts? Well, I, I mean, from what I've seen and in reading the, uh, the, for example, the recent request for information around some potential changes to Medicare, Medicaid, and, and uh, the uh, pharmacy services they, you know, they're looking for innovative ideas. They're looking for community ideas on Medicaid. They're looking for different payment structure ideas. Um, and I think perhaps they're looking beyond maybe the, uh, the – if there's anything I would say that sort of you saw the last time was there was a whole lot of academic thinking about this stuff, but I don't think there was sometimes a lot of practical thinking about some of these ideas. And perhaps now, at least the sense I get, is they're looking a little bit more at least towards some of the folks – um, that are in the space, uh, maybe not the people you have known, but are, are reaching out at least through that to gather information. The, the request for information looked pretty interesting. Yeah, I saw that survey. That's that's a good one. Um, but 
the, the, the one thing I associate with her, her, her work, is block grants for Medicaid, Healthy Indiana, as, as a case in point. And then and from what I've seen, uh, you know, there are mixed reviews uh, about Healthy Indiana's uh, uh, success in the state. I mean, do we have any reason to believe that she is not an advocate of these, uh, the block grant approach, which seems to be in line with both Price and, and Trump? Uh, for uh, you know a revised version of the Affordable Care Act is, is is that an unreasonable assumption? No, I think that's exactly what uh, that's what propelled her into the position to begin with is the idea that the federal government, in the sense of this administration wanting to deconstruct the federal government, a big component of that is pushing health care back to the states. Mm-hmm. They absolutely want to do that. And in effect, it, it, it gives them and it gives the GOP an opportunity to cap that expense in a way that they've never been able to cap it before is effectively to say, here, we're going to give you this amount of money. We're going to increase it every year by this amount, but that's it. And the states, you're on your own and you figure out whether or not you can, you know, live within that framework and it's tough on you if you have a bad year or if you have an unhealthy population or if you have, um, you know, troubles with population size that affect the, the amount of money that we're going to give you. And, Fred, yeah, think, from, a, um, from a population health perspective, is this a good thing or what? Again, I don't – the current system isn't working. Um now, there are obviously all kinds of alternatives you can go to that we talk to on a big level. Oh, we go single payer, we can go this, we can do that. Um, but at the end of the day, it all gets down to that delivery system at the end of the thing. And that's where we struggle because it didn't matter what we put on top of it. The delivery system drives the cost higher. So if any of this can lead to some repositioning or thinking, you know, I've always thought if I, if I were a healthcare system today and I really wanted to solve this problem, I would say, just pay me what you paid me last year, and I'll keep everything I can save. And go, for example, like in a global cap model, and then, you know, you actually do fairly well if you would consider all of the problems and and overutilization, et cetera, we have in the system. So I I don't know that necessarily moving it to the states is problematic or not. It's more about what you do with it at the end. Um, and, mm-hmm. and less about what model is on top of it if you give it enough freedom to make the changes necessary. Yeah, that that to me is the sort of cap the pipeline. There's plenty of money uh, in the system. Uh, give us some regulatory relief so we can pretty much do what we think is in the best interest of the patient. And somehow that alchemy is going to result in what? Flat or uh, you got healthcare rising at the at CPI versus a multiple. I mean, uh, that sounds good, but do we have any evidence that it can work? None. No, <laughs> very limited, and that's that's been the real challenge in part because we have positive results from some of these experiments, and that's really the best way to categorize them as experiments because they haven't been proven in other systems, but we do have positive results. The challenge is that those positive results don't translate to lower premium costs. And that's the part that is, you know, that's the part that I always choke on 
is we're saving a bunch of money over here in the hospitals and we're saving a bunch of money to CMS and Medicare. We're saving a bunch of money in different directions, but none of it is translating to the bottom line in the sense of premiums that, that consumers wind up having to pay. That right. number goes up that number goes up every year and it's and it's unsustainable. And so unless and until we can get to changing and bending that cost curve, everything else is experimental. Right. And I think you're seeing a couple examples of this. If you start looking at some of these primary care based systems, you know, we had Roy Hinman on the show over a year ago and and uh, folks like Aura Health, et cetera, they're actually very successful in managing and reducing those costs for those patients they're managing and improving quality outcomes. But as, as Dan points out, it's not getting up to the top and impacting the premium being paid or the Medicare Advantage costs, et cetera. So somewhere else that money is going. And the, and the, and the, primary, the primary category where we see all of this play out is actually an employer-sponsored insurance. That's the biggest single tier of coverage in the country is the commercial market for employer-sponsored insurance. It represents about 155 million Americans that get their, that get their health insurance through their employer. And that, that figure is, what is, is where all of the other numbers sort of funnel to. Bingo, bingo. I mean, and we didn't even get to single payer and whether the current pluralistic <laughs> payer model in the U.S. is even viable going forward. Well, guys, a lot to cover, short time frame to cover it in. We, you did a great job. Thanks for weighing in today. And that will have to be the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank my guests, Fred Goldstein and Dan Monroe, for their insights. Do follow both Fred and Dan on Twitter via F.S. Goldstein and at Dan Monroe, M-U-N-R-O. And on the web, www.accountablehealthllc.com and www.dan-monroe.com. Finally, if your hospital, health system, physician venture, or healthcare conference is in the market for social media support, including content development, curation, or engagement, ping me on Twitter by at 2HealthGuru. Or email Greg with two G's at healthinnovationmedia.com. Fred and I will be happy to lend our subject matter expertise to your efforts. Until we meet again on This Week in Health Innovation, this is Greg Masters saying bye now. People couldn't believe what I've become.